Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest John Quiggin, uh, author of Economics in Two Lessons, Why Markets Work So Well and Why They Can Fail So Badly. The book was just published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Professor Quiggin is a senior fellow in economics at the University of Queensland in Australia. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You know, your your uh, work is, uh, I think, of, of tremendous interest to uh, a lot of people who are um, affected by the economic debates in the United States and globally, but specifically in the United States. And the, one of the key things, I'm sure this is intentional, as you, you mentioned throughout the book, that you have plenty of mathematical, heavy mathematically uh, driven uh, works available. But this is a non-quant account. Uh, of more than a century of key arguments and structures about economics. Uh, and I, I was really very pleased uh, and, and thought it was very digestible even for non-economists. But in effect, it is a, a, a work of macroeconomics. And so I, I, I applaud you in, in doing that and in, in a non-mechanical non-quantitative way, explaining some of the key issues uh, and disputes in economics that are playing out every day, in the, certainly in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, in Australia as well, uh, and more locally perhaps in DC on CNBC and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And so uh, just to frame the, the exercise, you know, there is this uh, uh, assertion in the US, which has been dominant for decades, and, and you're pushing against it, which is great about that, that there's a market solution for every, every, um, every problem. And you're pointing out that, that that just isn't so, and that the history of the market solution for every problem debate, that there is a long history. And as you say, it, it's, it's framed in uh, either an economics in one lesson or an economics in two lessons. Could you maybe start off by just uh, explaining the, the, the meaning of your title and the history of that title? Sure. Well, it's a response to a book called Economics in One Lesson by um, Henry Hazlitt, who was um, 
uh, writing in the mid-20th century um, uh, or from the 20s, I guess, to uh, uh, relatively recently. And he basically in turn was drawing on um, great French economist Bastiat. And so his crucial point really from was... From the mid-19th uh, century. That's right, yes. Um, his crucial point really was... Uh, uh, summed up in the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch, that um, even when some kind of government intervention seems to provide something for nothing, uh, there's a hidden cost somewhere. So that, that point is uh, is sort of made in various ways uh, through his through his book, and that book's been uh, written in the 1940s, uh, been on sale ever since, and um, I'd written a previous book called Zombie Economics looking at... Um, uh, various things I thought were wrong with contemporary economics and um, and uh, uh, Princeton suggested that a response to this book uh, uh, would be something really good to do and uh, I decided economics in two lessons. Not that what Hazlitt says uh, is wrong but that it's incomplete and um, that uh, the, the logic he describes works but it doesn't always work in the, uh, in the way that he suggests it does. Uh, frequently, if we're going to have markets working, we need government backing to make them work. Now, you 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 frame this debate, which is the you know the entire book about really how markets work, and then externalities and so forth that uh, uh, make them work less well, and and policy options that can uh, uh, be involved as well. But you do so throughout with what an interesting tool that allows you to measure pretty much every element of this and this opportunity cost. So you explain both the market approach with a, a clear understanding of opportunity cost and then how the markets don't work because opportunity costs become distorted. And I, I thought that was a very, uh, 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 for non-economists, a very simple and consistent way to measure the one system versus, as it were, the purported other system. Could you go over opportunity costs and how they can be used almost, I won't call it as a universal measure, but in this case, it is the constant measure of the success or failure of these approaches to economic systems. That's right. Well, opportunity cost is, um, opportunity cost of anything is what you have to give up to get that thing. And that that's uh, that opportunity cost arises inside markets and outside markets. If I, uh, if I choose to... Uh, watch TV. That's time I can't spend reading a book, for example, in a very simple, simple version of of that story. So it is uh, an important respect to a universal concept. Uh, it cuts very much against the idea, which is popularised with some non-economists, that um, uh, that uh, economics is all about money. I mean, money, as I described, money and money prices reflect opportunity costs only under special circumstances. When we have well-working competitive markets, you can indeed look at the price of something and say, well, that price is, is the opportunity cost both for me and for society. If I consume this, uh, good, I can't, uh, that's money I can't spend on something else. Uh, meanwhile, if society produces the good, the resources used to produce that good uh, can't be used for some other, other purpose. And in a competitive market, those two things match up, and that, that's the marvel of the market, which I like to think I actually bring out better, I think, than, uh, than Hazlitt, precisely because I stress the conditions and the limits under which this works. Right. So prices are, you know, the, the standard University of Chicago model just takes prices as a given and assumes that they are kind of opportunity cost neutral. You're... you're you're going beyond price to say, listen, there's a mechanism by which prices is, is derived. And then you use that mechanism to highlight when there are flaws in price, which is the one lesson economic folks have a hard time dealing in. It's 
That's right. And, and here, as you mentioned, I'm drawing on a huge body of, of mathematical theory that demonstrates exactly how this uh, how this works. But you don't need to um, you don't need to do the math to understand the basic idea that uh, goes right back to Adam Smith that uh, uh, that when markets work in the way they should, uh, if something is being charged for a price that exceeds its value to other people. To consumers, less of it will be produced, and the um, and the uh, uh, market price will adjust. I have a nice quote from Hayek about the price of tin that um, uh, uh, that yeah, somebody who's in the market for tin doesn't. If the price goes up, they don't need to know whether that's because there's a strike in the tin mine on the other side of the world, or whether because there's another use for tin. All they need to know is tin is more expensive than it used to be. Uh, they should find some way to use less of it to substitute some other material for it, for example. So so that's how markets work, and it's an incredibly impressive mechanism. And I guess uh, my book is addressed at least as much to people on the left of politics who distrust markets as the people on the right who have too much faith in them. And then uh, the, the you, you do highlight, and I'm sure in a way that they have tried to rebut over the years, that a lot of things from a one-lesson economic approach, that is that the market ha- is a reasonable market and market prices are a reasonable, um, you know, kind of uh, offer reasonable equilibrium. You point over and over again that the underlying assumptions of a market economy don't take into account certain factors, specifically property rights. And then there's also intellectual property rights and certain other kind of what are perceived to be natural and almost non-economic uh, frameworks, but as you point out, once you look at them not from a price perspective, but from an opportunity cost perspective, that the uh, that they are not neutral, uh, and that the opportunity costs are distorted by ver- whatever the specific property relationships in any given context uh, might well be, and that those are historical factors that people have to take into account. That's right, uh, and, I, and I think intellectual property provides the clearest case because there we can see the property rights being created. If you look at things like land, the history of land goes back a long way, and um, I mean, I have a quote from Hume saying, "Yeah, at some point, in essence, it was stolen." But um, in the case of intellectual property, we can actually see rights being taken away from one group of people and given to another. That every time our Congress as has done over many years, extends the term of copyright, that takes away the right of, of users to uh, do things like um, draw pictures of Mickey Mouse, assigns those rights to the Disney Corporation. It takes away the rights of, of, uh, of, ph- of pharmaceutical producers to produce pharmaceutical, gives it to whoever holds the patent or copyright uh, on that pharmaceutical. And, and so that's something where... Uh, where those property rights are clearly being created uh, uh, as we uh, in, in full view, but it's also true that when you change the law regarding what kind of uh, uh, what kind of bargaining procedures allowed between unions and, and corporations, both unions and corporations exist in a framework of law. As you change the law, you change the property rights in ways that um, substantially affect the outcome of things like wage, wage bargaining. And that wage bargaining or the uh, intellectual property, your point is that with these, uh, again, I might call them externalities, so I think in an, uh, for economists that means something slightly different, but that these externalities explain or begin to explain a lot of why 
one lesson in economics that is just simple, a market has an answer for everything, why that fails to answer so, so many questions and why there are uh, huge distortions periodically, recessions, depressions, market bubbles, et cetera, uh, that really are very poorly explained by an uh, economics in one lesson approach. That's right. So there's really two things going on here. One is the point that um, if you ignore the opportunity costs arise when we create property rights, take the opportunity cost is essentially creating property rights for one person, takes away choices for other people, uh, what you get is an implicit privileging of certain kinds of property rights, uh, that roughly speaking, the, the narrow definition of property rights that covers uh, covers share ownership and covers covers ownership of corporations, covers ownership of lands and things like that, uh, but doesn't include um, uh, doesn't include uh, rights to ideas, rights to um, rights to a job, for example. So that's one part of it. But the other part is, uh, as you say, uh, the whole setup in terms of ensuring that prices match opportunity costs depends on the assumption that uh, the economy is working in such a way that there aren't any free lunches left on the table. There aren't any bargains that could be made and aren't being made. In a recession, that simply isn't true. There are unemployed workers who'd be eager to produce something uh, and people who'd happily consume it, but the market doesn't deliver that outcome. And, and uh, that that's the, the core idea of macroeconomics. And you know, I invoke Keynes. He was the first person to say this isn't just a... Um, uh, a random blip which will go away quickly, uh, this can happen and be sustained for very long periods. And we've seen that uh, seen that recently over the last, uh, over the last decade that uh, uh, things are going along fine, the financial crisis comes along and takes years and years and years for full employment to return. Even though we're now much nearer full employment, the people who have jobs now and are working productively were just as capable of doing that five years ago when they're unemployed. And, you know, uh, at a more basic level, the and and maybe this is a cartoon version, but in the full Chicago model, you don't have booms and busts because a properly working market uh, addresses those things and offsets them fairly quickly, the imbalances that occur. And the history of booms and busts and distortions and high levels of unemployment kind of uh, on just – in very simple terms, shows that a, that that simple approach doesn't work. Though I think if Milton Friedman here, he would say that it is, and this is what's interesting in your in your second lesson, which is where you begin to make policy proposals, broadly speaking, policy proposals, is that the imperfect imperfections of the system are due to the imperfect markets. If we had perfect markets, then we wouldn't have these extremes, and we would have closer to to full employment. But that it is, you know, uh, the counter argument that it is uh, it is imperfect markets that lead to imperfect outcomes and perfect markets would lead to perfect outcomes. That's, that's their answer to this. And you're saying, well, you can't get around, uh, you can't get to proper opportunity costs uh, as a driver of good market activity uh, with the current set of whether it's regulation or um, uh, property rights or uh, regulatory frameworks. Uh, I may be incorrectly stating your position, but it becomes a complicated back and forth, uh, regardless. It, it does, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in my previous zombie economics book, I talked quite a bit about this, and Friedman actually had a more sophisticated position than the Chicago economists who succeed him in the 
1980s and 1990s. So Friedman certainly recognised that the economy could be out of whack and stay that way for a long period. Uh, he basically said, but don't try and do too much. Um, just use, uh, use monetary policy to stabilise the economy. The next generation came up with this idea of real, real business, so-called real business cycle theory in which even when it looks as if the economy is in recession, supposedly people are making the right choices. Uh, uh, you have a sudden preference for, for leisure, so um, uh, it's been derided as the great vacation theory of depressions. But um, uh, that, that was a kind of desperate attempt to salvage the idea that the equilibrium I'm talking about um, uh, where prices match opportunity costs prevailed at all times, that's kind of been abandoned but without uh, without any real rethinking, I think, of the, of the Chicago position. So you have a situation where the Chicago economists can scarcely deny that uh, that these recessions are a big problem, but they don't have, uh, uh, they've ruled out of court really any possible solution. One, one big externality I also want to get to before moving on to another topic is, and it's one that Hazlitt acknowledges, and it's one even that I uh, working my way through financial history, uh, not as an economist, but more from uh, a finance and investment perspective, a stock market perspective, is uh, is, is pollution. Uh, the market solution for pollution is 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 just terrible. There is no market solution for pollution, and uh, it's um, you know, and even Hazlitt acknowledged that. And, uh, you you spend a fair amount of time on the book trying to to figure out, you know, what uh, how how we can given that. Uh, climate change and pollution are now really, really pressing issues for the planet. Uh, what is the economic approach to that? And and the the one lesson crowd is doesn't have much to say about it, unfortunately. No, well, of course, it's not that there isn't a market solution. I think um, yeah, the vast majority of economists outside the narrow one lesson group would agree that if we created the right kinds of property rights and had the right kinds of prices, that would be the best way of solving the problem. Um, that is that we would have, for example, a system of trade emissions permits. The problem, I think, is that um, uh, the, this really would confront the, the pure one lesson people with the, the fact that property rights aren't these natural, naturally occurring things. They're something that's created by society to serve social ends. And so rather than admit that point, they've essentially resorted to uh, wishing the problem away by embracing climate science denial. So... Uh, if climate science, you know, if global warming isn't a problem, then we don't need to create global property rights to fix the, fix it. Uh, and so that that kind of wishful thinking has been the predominant response among uh, among one lesson economists, unfortunately. Uh, so again, it's it's not the markets can't work; it's that they can only work in the context of the right kinds of of property rights and the right kinds of government policies. I, I think in terms from a finance perspective of the right kinds of depreciation charges, maybe that's a little too mechanical, but if you had a proper depreciation charge for uh, carbon, meaning uh, items, uh, the impact done to the economy uh, from uh, carbon heavy activities, uh, many things would be much more expensive than they currently are, uh, flying airplanes and, and a lot of manufacturing activities. Uh, uh, for me, it would just be an accounting issue, just you, you take a, a full account of the cost uh, to uh, the planet, not just the cash cost of, of getting the resource. And the world looks very, very different when you have uh, a much, much higher depreciation charge for certain activities. And that would create potentially, and this is my view, not yours, and we'll end it in seconds here, but that would create more of a, a fair market approach to to pollution if, if things were priced correctly from my perspective. 
No, I agree entirely with that. Uh, and uh, the problem is, of course, um, uh, making companies and users, ultimately, of course, consumers pay that price um, uh, requires either uh, explicit uh, carbon taxes or, or uh, pollution permits, and uh, that's proved politically incredibly difficult. Yeah, and even when uh, a carbon, the the charge, that the uh, purported charge for carbon, I actually have encountered a few times, is uh, really quite low, and I thought unusually low. I'm not certain how well-developed carbon charges are, but uh, over time, perhaps that will become more developed. I want to step back just a little bit because I do think it, it is important for particularly those who had to work their way through economics textbooks because in addition to answering a very real and present question or in, engaging in a debate between sort of the Chicago school, the, the, the market uh, always is correct in the solution to a, a more nuanced approach through opportunity cost. Uh, you actually also provide a, a nice history of macroeconomics, uh, starting briefly with, with, uh, uh, with Adam Smith, but uh, you know, the, the real history of macroeconomics and the textbooks that are on too many shelves uh, are, starts uh, with Alfred Marshall in, in the late 19th and early 20th century. You pick it up with Kate Marshall, Pigou, Keynes. You don't do much with Samuelson because he, he really approaches things from a different perspective. But then you do go through the 70s, where the, uh, up through the 70s, where the Chicago school is dominant. And now you're part of the pendulum swing back. And I, 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 I like Marshall, and I wonder if we can kind of save Marshall a little bit. Uh, and if you could just provide an overview uh, just uh, of of that history so that these students who picked up one textbook uh, realize actually there are a lot of different textbooks and there are different ways to frame this very important issue of, of macroeconomics. Hmm. Well, I talk a lot about Marshall in the context of externalities and the history of the word. I'm obviously fascinated by intellectual history and words and things like that. And Marshall, this, this idea of externalities um, comes in originally in the notion of external economies of scale, that if you have um, a bunch of people producing the same good in a given, given area, uh, they'll all benefit each other by, um, uh, by creating a supply of uh, a network of suppliers and so forth. And that's actually come back. Um, uh, Paul Krugman made his name on, on that stuff. And then I move on and talk about um, uh, you know, Marshall's great successor, uh, Keynes, who's um, very, much in, very much in the Marshall mould making the point that all of these things will only work if the economy is operating at full employment and that that can't be automatically guaranteed. And um, uh, Marshall and Keynes are both very readable. Um, uh, you move on, you mentioned Samuelson, and, and yeah, Samuelson was a great economist and, and I admire him very much. And, and if you want to actually put numbers on the kinds of things that we're talking about, you need to start with a textbook like Samuelson's Foundations and uh, or the various versions of of the same thing that come and just for uh, everyone for, for the benefits who you know so this is 1890 to 1920 is for marshall yeah. uh keynes is is 1934 uh, uh samuelson is 1949 and from and samuelson comes from a different tradition a, a, a more mechanical tradition by the way he's the best writer by far keynes is also very good but samuelson is yeah. a different league as a writer samuelson writes really well but yeah, i think yeah i think the crucial thing samuelson not so much coming out of a different tradition is starting a new one in which which mathematical formula formalization was played a key role and that's valuable but you don't need it to understand the issues you need it if you want to if you want to for example construct economic models get actual numbers uh, but to understand the issues you can really do everything in my view 
with this idea of opportunity cost and prices. Which is what I, uh, again, and that is so accessible compared to a lot of the, the quantitative uh, finance uh, that I encounter. Uh, but, the, you know, the Chicago school becomes dominant for several decades uh, in finance and investments. I've been... Uh, have, have had to deal with them as well. Uh, and now, and that period's from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and, and now they're, the pendulum, would you say, is swinging, swinging back yeah. towards a more balanced approach? Yeah, so I think economics is driven by crisis. So I think um, Keynes came in in the 30s, right in the Great Depression, had an answer which seemed to work for a very long time, uh, right up until the early 1970s. Uh, when that broke down, Friedman had a plausible explanation of a lot of it, and and uh, we saw the Chicago School first with Friedman and then with the more extreme versions like real business cycle theory holding sway again until the global financial crisis, for which they really had no explanation and no answer. And so, um, so now we're after the last ten years, the pendulum has been swinging, but also also in a sense the profession is sort of out in the wilderness trying to work out what to do with this. Um, uh, there hasn't been a new consensus emerging, rather um, different groups uh, saying, well, this what everything proves I was right. But I think um, the end result has been to very much erode the certitudes of the Chicago School that prices match up with opportunity costs and that financial markets, uh, are, however crazy they may seem, uh, do the job they're supposed to in terms of matching the opportunity cost of capital with the available capital, the view that, no, look, some of this just is crazy, I think has a much stronger purchase after 10 years of crisis than it did. Indeed. And, and my uh, overlap with your work is greatest in that section where you deal with the efficient market hypothesis and the notion that, that markets, uh, financial markets are efficient, which is just a, 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 a sub-example or an example of the broader uh, theory. But uh, the various crises that occur within financial markets and the uh, wild swings in asset pricing uh, have, have shown that to be uh, not true. But still, everyone's MBA and the CFA program, it's all still, yeah. it's all still Chicago. It's all still Merton Miller. And, uh, you know, the pendulum, uh, is, the, the fight may be uh, going on in the trenches, but in academia, I'm not, you know, you're, this is one of the reasons I was so keen on interviewing you. Uh, I don't know where academia stands at this point, but uh, in the popular imagination, uh, uh, the, the the Chicago School still is 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 very predominant. It's an interesting thing. One one of the things that happened around this time, the nineteen seventies, was that um, uh, uh, finance uh, finance sort of there was a historical kind of finance that was very institutionally based and didn't really have much theory to it. Finance split off from economics with the efficient markets hypothesis. All the all the big figures there were were econ people, uh, farmer, and um, then of course um, black skulls and people like this. They, they all came out of economics, but then uh, moved into a separate finance discipline. And so, so I think that uh, the economics profession as a whole has moved very much away from uh, one lesson certitudes, not entirely, but um, uh, the, the, all the interesting ideas in the last thirty years have been about. Uh, reasons why that doesn't work, whereas I think finance has has more dug into the uh, the technicalities of of, for example, the um uh, the capital asset pricing model right. and its various evolutions. Because of course, there's a huge amount of money to be made in um 
in getting those models to work a little bit better than the next person's model. So so you do have this divide in academia, I think, now between uh, economics and finance. Within finance, I will just shout out the behavioral uh, finance people are making headway, yes. and uh, that's that's to be applauded. Let, let's shift to sort of the second part of your book where you're, you're – uh, moving towards, and, and you specifically say you're not trying to promote a policy agenda, but you, you, you sort of are uh, because you do. I am. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you do. And, and uh, you're raising some key issues. Not ju- uh, uh, They are the key ones that are, are discussed throughout the book. They involve uh, full levels of, uh, levels of unemployment or levels of unemployment. They involve income inequality and, and mechanisms to adjust it. And they also deal with, with uh, pollution, among other things. And you you are advocating uh, the externalities that would, and correct me if I'm wrong if I rephrase this, but supporting externalities that would offset and kind of level the playing field against those natural externalities, property rights, intellectual property rights that have distorted opportunity costs. And you want to you want to provide kind of a pendulum or a, a counterbalance to those externalities with your own that would make opportunity cost a better and more effective tool. Is that a, a fair overview? Yeah. I mean, I challenge the view that these things are natural, but but they are what we have. And so, yeah, what I'd say- Inherited, is, perhaps um, inherited. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose what I certainly obviously have a policy agenda. I'm more saying in this book, I want to set the scene for people to think about things rather than- Rather than lay out specific policies, I want to say this is how we should think about these issues. So um, uh, I hope in thinking about it, people will come up with ideas that are kind of similar to mine. But uh, the book doesn't set out much in the way of saying, this is the 10-point plan you should follow. It says, uh, this is the way you should think about these issues. Well, a couple of the issues are uh, uh, minimum wage uh, and unions to deal with issues of, of, of uh, employment do you want to, you know, explain how, because again, in the U.S., minimum wage legis- legislation uh, and unionization or union uh, pro against union has, has become unfortunately almost not economic, but uh, highly, highly politicized. You're at least making mostly, if not entirely, economic arguments about the pros and the cons of these. Do you want to kind of highlight those? Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying, of course, um, I'm writing for a U.S. audience, and and you know, the U.S. is is the big important economy in the world, especially because I can't make head or tail of the Chinese economy, so I never say anything about that. Uh, but in this context, being an Australian gives you a different perspective. Australia has the highest minimum wage in the world uh, uh, in real terms, um, and yet uh, our labour market in most respects looks very like the U.S., very similar rates of unemployment, very similar patterns in terms of uh, uh, it's certainly true that, of course, uh, less educated workers have higher unemployment rates, but we don't have any of the effects uh, that a lot of people in the US debate would, would anticipate from having a high minimum wage. Um, uh, and so so that, I suppose, uh, frames my thinking quite a bit. Um, uh, what I look at is is the question of, of what effect the minimum wage is going to have on the market distribution of income. So, so part of the story is... Uh, uh, one tendency in the uh, period in which the Chicago school was dominant, uh, what you might call the third wave, was to say, look, let the market rip, but then we'll redistribute everything through taxes and social welfare 
and it'll be all right. Uh, what's being pushed here is, no, the, the distribution of income you get coming out of the market, uh, coming out of the labour market, for example, uh, is just as important as what you do with uh, taxes and transfers to redistribute that. And so the evidence, uh, as I read it, is that um, uh, a higher minimum wage in total will, in fact, uh, uh, benefit workers at the low end of the low end of the scale. That the um, apparent um, uh, the the uh, evidence seems to be that uh, a substantial part of the downward pressure on wages comes from the fact that uh, uh, workers don't have uh, the unlimited freedom to move between jobs that's implied in the Chicago model, and that uh, employers do have a substantial power to hold wages down. And of course, uh, stand economics whenever anybody has the power to lower the price they pay and increase the prices that they charge, they'll use that power. Has that, you know, again, I just uh, not to challenge you on every point, but, you know, in a manufacturing economy, the the uh, imbalance in power between labor and capital is is uh, uh, clear in the service economy. It's it's a little less clear and the gig economy. It's very less clear because uh, labor is fairly, fairly mobile. It uh, uh, and, you know, that I, I'm just, you know, I, as a historian, I would highlight that that classic distinction between uh, labor and capital is should have a historical element to it, that it was it was a lot worse at an earlier time, shall we say. I, I don't know how that figures in. Well, I would actually turn that around. I mean, I think um, in US context particularly, um, I mean, for historical reasons, yeah, the high point of US manufacturing also, um, also coincided with the high point of the American Union movement. You had this situation coming out of World War II where the US manufacturing sector was so far advanced ahead of everybody else that they they could charge high prices globally and and receive them and at the same time labor was very strong and got uh, got high wages so you had this situation where uh, manufacturing workers could earn a middle class income not because there's anything special about manufacturing or the, or the work they did but because of the economic circumstance at the time whereas uh, the gig economy really turns those things around they're only i mean uh, there are the number of platforms available for gig workers compared to um, uh, the number of workers potentially able to work is uh, a huge imbalance of power. So, um, so uh, really, what you see is that uh, uh, the absence of secure conditions for, for gig workers, I think, has contributed significantly to the stagnation of wages that we've seen uh, in the US and in Australia um, in the last uh, in Australia for the last 10 years maybe in the US really for the last 40 years and technology you don't really address the role of technology and productivity gains as contributing to that um, that the you know almost a, a nominal uh, deflation it's not really part of what you're trying I don't talk about it in this book but I do talk about it a lot and my view is, there's always an interaction between technology and um, technology and the social and economic conditions, property rights, and so forth. Um, uh, the, yeah, the manufacturing high wage equilibrium in the US had depended on, of course, the availability of, of that manufacturing technology, but also on the social condition that produced uh, powerful unions. Uh, when you have you know, technological disruption, uh, that's going to favour whoever has the most power, and so uh, in the current in the US current environment in the US and in Australia, 
uh, workers have really in unions been pushed backwards. But as long as you, as long as things are stable, you know, employers may choose not to take on the fight. But when you disrupt things, when you break up the existing arrangements, what emerges is going to be to the benefit of whichever group has the power at the time. And and in the context of the US and Australia, that's very much employers as opposed to workers. So I think it, this disruptive effect of technology doesn't have a predictable direction. You know, in, in other circumstances, um, you know, the creation of the US manufacturing sector uh, and all the uh, disruption that went on with that sit-down strikes and so forth uh, produced the high-wage economy of the 50s and 60s. Uh, the disruption of the digital economy has produced the low-wage gig economy. Let's move on to another uh, hot-button issue, uh, tax rates, income distribution. You do spend a lot of time pointing out that you know, income uh, inequality is uh, – and, and this may be a debatable point depending on one's kind of fundamental precepts about how one's approaches society and levels of equality. And you, know, you do uh, again point out that, that uh, significant inequality is – uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is yet another view that uh, of the, the externalities that you would uh, perhaps adjust on the other side with a marginal tax rate uh, and, you know, taxing what, what the top 1% should be taxed and so forth. Do you want to touch on that again? Because it is such a, a hot button issue. Sure. Yeah. So I want to, yeah, I again, address this with this notion of opportunity cost that, um, that, uh, if, for example, you, you cut the top marginal tax rate, as we in Australia have just done, uh, that um, uh, that produces, of course, an increase in uh, in post-tax income immediately for high-income earners. Uh, the opportunity cost is what you could have done with the tax revenue, uh, less what leaks along the way. I mean, if you if you take money from one person and give it to another, uh, some of it is going to be lost. The person who's paying the taxes will employ lawyers to reduce what they pay. Uh, and of course, some of it will be uh, lost in the costs of, of paying to other people. Uh, you can do those numbers, and then then the question is: Well, what's yeah? You know, what is the social value of this choice? Uh, is it worth taking a thousand dollars off somebody in the top one percent to give nine hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, one hundred dollars to a poor person? Uh, that's a choice that has to be made, and that's where the opportunity cost opportunity cost issue comes in and where economists don't have much more expertise than anybody else. Everybody has to make those choices. But what I suggest is, um, roughly speaking, uh, an idea of, of proportional change in income, that if we cut the income of the, of the top one of the top rich people by, say, 10% and increase the income of the poor by 20%, uh, that would be an improvement in welfare. When you do that kind of number, you come up with uh, estimates that the optimal top marginal tax rate should be something like seventy percent. And the math behind that is complicated, but uh, it's all there in the all there in the journals. Uh, and and so uh, so that's the kind of kind of reasoning you get that uh, you want to re- you want to have those tax rates. Not so much, of course, that you end up tipping over the Laffer curve into the area where. Uh, income actually falls, but enough that you can redistribute income, uh, uh, market income from those who've gained from the existing arrangement, which of course, uh, yeah, for example, the huge money being made in the finance sector simply wasn't possible without the legal changes of the 70s and 80s uh, to those who've lost out. Uh, that being said, and even acknowledged, it is still just a uh, uh, exceptionally controversial uh, argument in, in the current, uh, it might not have been 
10 years ago, uh, but it is certainly now. Uh, monopoly, mixed economy, level of regulation, uh, shifts from monopoly manufacturers, which were all taught in school, to uh, monopsony, which is you know uh, the, what we're looking at more and more now in terms of uh, – uh, uh, how markets work with with uh, very very large buyers as opposed to very very large sellers. Uh, mm. That again, you're you're trying to strike the right balance of, of regulation and and getting the right mixed economy. But it's it's not it's a mixed economy. It's not that you know the the market is always the right answer. No, and I guess yeah, a large part of the book, and I suppose my my program generally is rehabilitating this idea of the mixed economy that was taken for granted pretty much in the 50s and 60s uh, whereas the idea of the um the ideas of of say the last last decades of last century was markets and everything that we can find uh, a market solution for every every problem i think the evidence is that uh, that's not the case equally of course um although i don't need to spend much time uh, doing it the 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 second half of the 20th century wasn't at all kind, rather, to the idea of central planning. And so um, so that's an idea. You know, when we talk about the mixture, uh, one pole central planning, I think, has been completely discredited. But um, it's important to recognise the other pole uh, of uh, a totally market-driven society also isn't going to be. And then you, you, you uh, end on, on uh, you know, something that, is just so very timely and important now and it and is open debate and I, I i i would hope that it's not political but it's become political in this country but again trying to figure out an a good economic approach to environmental policy given the challenges mm. the whole planet is facing and and there again it is not a pure market approach i mean do you want to provide a high some of the highlights of, of what you think Sure. Well, well, uh, it's an interesting thing because it's an area where, you know, when I started, it's an outmaging to mind. When I started twenty years ago, looking at this, people on the left in the environmental movement were very keen on what might be called command and control approaches that you should do this and you shouldn't do that, and there are still some people doing that you know, at an individual level, saying you should eat, not eat meat, or you should should do something. But most people in the environmental movement and on the social democratic left turns the idea of, of changing property rights and then using markets, using emissions trading, using uh, taxes, uh, those ideas actually came out of came out of the more sophisticated part of the Chicago school uh, but now have been almost entirely rejected on the political right. And so we're being pushed back to things which have broad appeal, um, which are command and control kinds of things of uh, mandates for renewables and so forth, uh, that's not the most effective way of of reducing uh, reducing emissions, and and I, yeah, it's something I've struggled with for a long time in terms of uh, what kind of things you should advocate. Uh, the difficulty of persuading people who ought to believe in markets that that if we'd only change property rights correctly, uh, we would have a market solution or depreciation charges correctly, accounting accounting correctly. Yeah. <laughs> And I spent a lot of time, yeah, I spent a bit of time explaining why those two things are essentially the same. Uh, why, if we had the right property rights, the depreciation charges, uh, depreciation on that property would appear in As they should. Well, uh, is, is there anything else you want to make sure that we haven't covered that, that uh, you want to make sure comes out in this and that the readers understand uh, that, that we haven't covered? 
I think just just repeat that the idea of this book is, yeah, as as the title, the promise says. I mean, it's it's one of those things like the secret and the rules that says here here is here is the answers. It doesn't make you an it doesn't make you an economist. What it does uh, is uh, give you the crucial ideas you need to understand. If you really want to say, well, okay, I get the idea, for example, of a carbon price, but should it be twenty dollars a ton or two hundred? Uh, for that, you need the kind of training that an economics degree gives you. But if you simply want to understand the logic, I, I really believe this book will tell you nearly everything you need to know. Uh, I do not uh, disagree. Uh, the book is Economics in Two Lessons by John Quiggin. It's why markets work so well and why they can fail so badly. And it does exactly for people who don't have the uh, at their stage in their life or their career the time to go back and and uh, do all the math of economics, but want to understand intelligently the debates uh, and some of the key issues facing uh, both policymakers, politicians to some extent, uh, in in modern macroeconomics. I highly recommend the book. Uh, it is uh, a very uh, uh, I wouldn't call it an easy read, but it's certainly easier, much, much easier than an economics textbook. Uh, it is uh, rendered in words and, and very well written. So, John Quiggin, thank you so much. Thank you.